Books Are My People, a bi-weekly podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 34. I am recording on Tuesday, October 13th. Hello, and a special welcome to any and all new listeners out there. October is swimming along. I voted. Did you vote? If you're voting by mail, do it early. The fires here are causing all sorts of air quality problems in California, and I have asthma, which makes it all the bit more challenging. So I'm on three different steroids. I do not have the roid rage, which I'm pretty happy about. I don't know. Steroids just make me tired, not ragey. What does that mean? I kind of want to experience the roid rage. I want to see what it's all about. We got word that maybe my sixth grader is going to go back to school in a very limited fashion for a few hours, one day a week towards the end of October to participate in some outdoor activities. So we'll see if it really happens or not. My chickens are all broody. I guess it really can be a socially contagious disorder. So egg production is way down but we have been baking a ton of bread again, except for the fact that our oven broke yesterday. So I think even the oven is like, please people stop baking the bread. This is ridiculous. We have a fantastic guest today. Author Mallory Tater will be stopping by all the way from Canada. And I've been reading so many great books lately that I am excited to pass along to you. But first, some bookish news. According to CNN, a former public library employee in Austin, Texas, bought $1.5 million worth of printer toner on the library's dime and then sold at least $1.3 million of the toner online. I like to think of librarians as the pinnacle of human decency, but I guess there can always be some bad eggs with a ton of toner to boot. Also, according to CNN, Jacqueline Woodson, author of Red at the Bone, which I've discussed on episode seven, has been granted a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. I could not be more thrilled for her, and she is just so, so deserving of this award. The winners get $625,000 paid out over five years, and she now joins the ranks of Lin-Manuel Miranda and Ta-Nehisi Coates. According to The Guardian, Akwake Amezi, whose novel The Death of Vivek Ohi I spoke about in the last episode, is the first non-binary transgender author to be nominated for the Women's Prize in 2019. But they've said that they will not submit future novels to the prize because the prize asked them for information about their sex as defined by law. Apparently, the judges didn't realize that Amezi is trans while reading their previous novel, Freshwater. The Women's Prize was initially established in 1991 as a response to the long-standing tradition of the Booker Prize excluding female writers. So the U.S. Prize seems hell-bent on getting a scientific definition of what a woman is, whereas, for example, in Australia, the Stella Prize for women allows anyone who identifies as a woman to submit. 
you can get your first look at the TV adaptation of The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. I'm going to include a link in the show notes if you want a sneak peek at some photos of the Amazon Studio production of The Underground Railroad. I'm so excited about this Civil War era adaptation. It's going to be an 11 episode limited series. I don't think I've talked about this novel on the show yet, but I will. And now, without further ado, I am thrilled to introduce today's guest author, Mallory Tater. Mallory is a writer from Ottawa living in Vancouver. Her debut novel, The Birthyard, was released with HarperCollins Canada on March 3rd, 2020. Her debut book of poetry, This Will Be Good, was released in the spring of 2018. She was the recipient of CV2's 2016 Young Buck Poetry Prize. She is the publisher of Rahila's Ghost Press, a poetry chapbook press, and she currently teaches fiction at the University of British Columbia and the University of Victoria. So welcome, Mallory. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Where are you calling in from today? Edmonton, Alberta today. We were here for some quarantine with the in-laws. That could go either way. I'm in the basement right now. I'm not hiding. I'm just down here for some quiet. (laughs) So I just wanted to tell listeners what your novel is about. This is a dystopic novel about 18-year-old Sable Ursu, and she has just reached breeding age as dictated by the Den, which is a cult run by men. The fertile young girls get matched up by men in order to procreate. As their pregnancy develops, the women are then sent to the birthyard, where they are monitored and drugged by midwives. Without giving too much away, this is a novel about finding one's voice, reclaiming one's body, and Sable's story is a gripping one that feels very current. Thank you. That's a really generous description of the book. So my first question is, you released this novel in March of this year. How was the experience of releasing a dystopic novel into the world during a global pandemic? Yeah, it was a really bizarre time to have a book come out. I squeezed in a launch before uh, the big shutdown, so I was able to celebrate with some family and friends. Um, I think what's really interesting is that I've been thinking a lot about how cults are often deniers of current events of that kind, or they will lean into uh, blaming people, like the real world, our regular society's uh, flaws on causing these sorts of things to happen, such as pandemics or natural disasters. So I've just been thinking a lot about that since releasing the book. And um it's almost unfortunate that the I couldn't have released the book next year in that I think this COVID would have informed a lot more details about the cults, uh, the den in the novel and their belief systems. And that could have been a really interesting, concrete, current event to add to the book. But little did I know, I guess, <laughs> that we would be seeing our first pandemic in over 100 years. I don't think you could have planned for that. But what you're saying is so interesting. And I think maybe a sequel could be in the works. I mean, the book, not to spoil the ending, but there is an open-ended aspect to it in that maybe Sable's journey is not quite complete. Um, So I think there could be an avenue to write a sequel, but I've just been um, 
just been pondering what that would look like in my head. And we'll see if I put uh, pen to paper on that in the next uh, few months or so. I would love that. You've managed to create an entirely new society in the birthyard as brilliantly as Margaret Atwood does in The Handmaid's Tale. What sort of research went into creating this world within the novel? And did you take your inspiration from this community from anything in particular? So in the same vein that some people are really obsessed with true crime, I really have always been engaged with researching cults and zealous religious groups and just the overall concept of uh, group think. And so I sort of blended some of my uh, favorites, a a dark word to use, but some of the cults that stuck with me the most uh, and kind of created my own, um, just kind of threading through the different elements that that make a cult. So I took a lot of inspiration from the FLDS or the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints who are mostly based in Utah. I took a lot of inspiration from the current hate group, the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, uh, the Source family, which was this cult in California where all of the followers did drugs and worked at a vegan restaurant and just kind of looked at um, how those cults you know, control fertility, they have a a charismatic, zealous leader, and how they all kind of thrive off of their followers' fear uh, to create compliance. So, and the den really focuses on the chemical, chemical, pardon me, indoctrination of of folks that follow. So that's using a lot of psychotropic drugs, etc. So it really is yeah, borrowed from all the different cults that I researched. I've been watching the TV series The Vow about the Nexium cult. Have you seen that? Yes. Also where I'm from. That's in Vancouver. There were a lot of parallels drawn. I kept thinking about your novel. Sable is such a fantastic character. I loved seeing her on her journey. You see her go from a kind of a blind follower to a free thinker. And I was wondering how she came into full focus for you as a writer. It's difficult to do in the writing process because I knew where I wanted her to, I knew her arc. I knew where I wanted her to get in her maturation and her defiance, but I had to start with her naivete uh, and her innocence. So it was really about the pacing to make sure that um, the pace in which she unlearns and learns about the world around her uh, didn't seem too drastic to the reader. So I really tried to focus on the fact that she is in fact a teenager and to try and capture that youth in her voice. And I think leaning on her female friendships in the novel, her two best friends was really helpful because the way that those teenagers interact while they're even pregnant, they're quite innocent and that juxtaposition in itself is quite dark. And because she's 18, so she can't quite know uh, the powers that be before her and what goes on um, with the leaders at the den as much because she doesn't have access to those spaces. Uh, we, My editor, uh, HarperCollins, Jennifer Lambert, and I decided to kind of ensure that the educational system in the den and that kind of propaganda was at Sable's fingertips and that she could quote that and lean on um, what she learns in lessons and how that's harmful to women and how it's become normal to her to try to make sure that I wasn't getting ahead of myself in her uh, sudden realization uh, that her world is very toxic. So it was delicate pacing wise. It was a good challenge for myself for sure. 
And my last question for you is what are you working on now? If you are able to work, I've been talking to a lot of writers on the podcast and in my life who are really struggling to get any work done. Oh, I completely agree. And when I do have that capacity and energy, um, I'm putting it towards my term and my students right now who I'm teaching on Zoom. And so when I do find a little time aside to write, I have to decide if I'm going to tackle it. Yeah, a creative project or if I just want to watch Netflix and order a pizza, right? Like it's not always the, that that time I used to pencil a schedule out to write. I sort of want to fill that with more relaxation or idle time now. But I am uh, chipping away at a novel that's kind of a satire slash uh, dark exploration of reality television. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. I'm not sure. It doesn't really know what it wants to be yet. But the nice thing is that my quote unquote research is just watching reality TV, which is a great chore for me. (laughs) That sounds perfect for the amount of bandwidth that I have right now. Well, everyone should go out and get themselves a copy of The Birthyard. And now on to the books. So I'm going to start us off today with an eco work of fiction. It is called The Disaster Tourist by Yun Ko Un. I got this book as an ebook from the library, and it was originally published in June of 2020. And it is translate, or actually, I should say, it was originally published in South Korea in 2013 and recently published in English in 2020. And it feels like the perfect year for it to be published because of it, its themes feel very 2020. So this is about a woman named Yona Ko who works in Seoul. She's in her 30s and has the bizarre job of booking vacation packages for disaster tours. People pay the company to go visit areas of the globe that have had natural disasters like tsunamis and earthquakes, as well as general places of poverty. She's worked there for over 10 years, and it's what we would call a toxic work environment. She's being sexually harassed at work by her boss. She's recently been demoted and she's just had it with the job. But when she tries to quit, her boss convinces her to travel as a tourist on one of their packages to their least popular destination. And the boss wants her to take notes on the trip in order to help the company think of ways to improve it. So she goes on the trip, which the company wants to tout as the most disastrous of all disaster tours. And in order to pull it off, the company decides that the best type of disaster is one that can be staged and then executed. But in order to strive for verisimilitude, people are going to have to die. This book is satire, so there are definite moments where the reader is laughing at things that are meant to be make us uncomfortable. There's a touch of Truman Show feel to it, although it's more surreal, darker, and more pointed. It's a novel about the environment, about the abuse of power, and about suffering and humanity, and really about what it means to want to gaze upon another human suffering. I can't really compare it to any other novel I've read because it's just so wholly original. And again, that's The Disaster Tourist by Yun Ko Un. Mallory, what do you have for us? I just want to say I can't wait to read that book. Um, so I was going to talk about Marjorie Salona's new novel, How a Woman Becomes a Lake. It was released, I actually think it was released March 2020, a week after mine. We were actually, I'm a huge fan of hers, and we were going to do an event together, and I was so star- starstruck and so excited. So COVID got in the way of that, but one day, I hope that I meet her. Um, she's just got this way with 
dialogue that sounds just like organic speech and her characters just feel like people sitting before you in your living room. It's just such, she's such a visceral writer. So this story, this story is a novel told by multiple perspectives. I believe it goes into four or five different perspectives about a woman's mysterious vanishing on a small town lake in rural Washington and a little boy that's out with his father for a walk at the same time and how connected they all are to this disappearance or not and it just goes into the lives of this quiet uh, quiet domestic town and the police officers trying to know what has happened and then the interpersonal relationships fall apart because of this disappearance and everyone just revolves around this mystery. And it's done so well. It's been a while since I've enjoyed a good mystery where I honestly, every step of the way, every pivot to a different point of view, uh, just long to know how this happened and what the fallout's going to be for these characters. Um, it was just a really thoughtful read. I also like that one of the point of views is the voice of a child, the little boy, Jesse, who was on a walk with his father. She writes children really compellingly. And I just I just thought Jesse was such a fascinating character to include in this novel. So highly recommend that. It's nice to jump point of views, too. I haven't read a book that does that in a little while. Marjorie Salona is the author, How a Woman Becomes a Lake. My next book is a much quieter novel than my first pick. It's called Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian, who is an Irish writer. This is turning out to be quite the international episode today. I had not read any of his previous books, but he has published quite a few. And this book is about two friends, Leonard, whose job it is to write entries for children's encyclopedias, and Hungry Paul, who is not just a postman, he is a substitute postman, Both men live with their parents, although up until recently, Leonard was living with his mother, who recently passed away, and the fact that both grown men live with their parents is not something the author is judgy about in the book. These men are not boy men, and I think the author portrays them in a very dignified way. They're just two adults who really appreciate their parents' company. We get to see the friendship between Leonard and Hungry Paul. We never find out why he's called Hungry Paul, but they enjoy walks together and conversation and playing board games. And it's just sort of a quiet, simple book about kindness and friendship. There's no huge plot points to reveal, which makes it challenging to talk about. But with so much chaos in the world, if you're looking for a different kind of book that feels like a throwback to a time before the internet when people had more frequent, meaningful conversations and spent their free time really getting to know one another, then this is the book for you. It is a perfect palate cleanser for these times. And again, it's called Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian. Mallory, what is your final pick? You know, it's funny when we were talking about uh, not having enough time to write. Sometimes I'm feeling like I don't even have the capacity to to read, which is an awful feeling. So I went for novellas this summer because they're just that much shorter and I can engage with them a bit more when I'm you know, anxious about other goings on. So this novella is called Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. And I believe it was published in 2019. It's a British book, which I like because I like 
having uh, the British jargon and different vocabulary uh, laced into a, a book where I learn a little bit about that. It takes place in the 90s, and it's about a young girl named Sylvie. She's a teenager, kind of in her awkward, self-conscious teenage years, and her father is a local city bus driver who is a very rough and unkind, uh, difficult-to-read man, but he is obsessed with the Iron Age um, in Britain. He's obsessed with the idea of British... Uh, heritage being like pure or 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 true to the land in a, in a kind of a racist angle um anyways he signs their family up to join this university trip in the woods where they live out the iron age for two weeks so sylvie is in the traditional dress of these iron age people they have to snare rabbits and you know cook bladders and forage for uh leaves and berries and while she's with these young university students who she's enamored with because they are that much older than her wiser more confident and the premise of the, the or the concept of ghost wall is that in the iron age uh they believe that uh certain rocks or walls uh could you could contact the dead through them and it's kind of Sarah Moss the author is really blurring reality and uh, magic realism a bit in within the novella uh to kind of represent I think um Sylvie's uh journey towards uh her agency and finding her voice as well so that's Sarah Moss's ghost wall I highly recommend that sounds amazing I remember hearing about that when it came out and for some reason I did not get my hands on it but I am going to go request it at the library right now. We've been watching a lot of Survivor at home, so it sounds like a perfect segue. Oh, absolutely. It's wild, too, how short it is and how much I learned. I couldn't believe it. My last pick is called Sad Janet, and it's by Lucy Bridge. This novel came out in June of this year and has the best cover of the saddest looking dog. I think it's a whippet of some sort. This is a dark comedy for sure and is about a woman named Janet who has long struggled with depression. Janet has a boyfriend, although it's not a really healthy relationship, and she works at a dog shelter, which is a job totally unrelated to her degree, which is in postmodern feminist science fiction. Right before the holidays, her family stages an intervention about her depression, claiming that everyone is on antidepressants. The family's on them, the boyfriend's on them, and they demand that she needs to get on them as well. Janet ends up breaking up with her boyfriend, and then she learns about a medical company hawking a new pill that promises to make the Christmas holiday season bearable. She is inherently against Big Pharma, but she feels so desperate, and she's around six months away from the holidays, so Janet is convinced to give it a try. Maybe she can turn her life around in six months with the help of this new pill. This novel is full of both melancholy and humor, and it's about depression, medication, dogs, surviving the holidays, and family dysfunction. And again, that is Sad Janet by Lucy Bridge. Up next for me is Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. Mallory, what are you going to read next? I've just cracked open a poetry collection, a debut for Canadian poet Sean Robinson with Brick Books. It's called If You Discover a Fire, which I think is such a a great title. Uh, 
anyone who lives in an apartment building like me, I the if you discover a fire is written all over the staircases and all over where the uh, they put the um, what's that called? The extinguisher. <laughs> Anyways, the palms are really narrative and very urban, but also mixed with the poet's time tree planting. So there's a lot of different relationship connections, disconnections. Um, eating Tsunamono salad at a quiet Japanese restaurant, kind of unpacking toxic, ma toxic masculinity with humor and story. And it just really gives a good sense of place. I think it's a stellar narrative poetry debut. So it's called If You Discover a Fire by Sean Robinson. All of the books we've recommended today are listed in the show notes section and at booksaremypeople.com with a link through to my bookshop.org store, Books Are My People, including Mallory Tater's The Birthyard, which you should all go out and buy. Mallory, thank you so much for stopping by today. It was a pleasure having you. And if listeners want to know more about you, where can they go? Yeah, thanks for having me too. It was great. I can't wait to add some new books to my list. Um, so I have a website, MalloryTater.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Malatonin. I will leave a link to Mallory's website and Twitter in the show notes as well. I hope you all have a wonderfully bookish week and don't forget to vote like your life depends on it. <laughs>